I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily. Selected as Best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hello and welcome to Mission Daily. Today's guest is Laura Shin, a former reporter and editor for Forbes magazine and host of the Unchained podcast. While at Forbes, Laura spent several years covering cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. She later used the insights and connections from her reporting to create the Unchained podcast, a weekly show that features interviews with some of the most influential people in the crypto and blockchain space. Through her reporting and the show, Laura has gained a unique insight into the world of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. In this episode, Stephanie and Laura sit down to discuss the basics of Bitcoin, what it is, how it works, and how it's changing the world. They also talk about how women are slowly gaining traction in a space that has been dominated by men, and how Laura and other influencers in the crypto community are working to change public perception of the currency. This episode marks the start of our two-week series on cryptocurrency. Over the next nine episodes, we're going to cover the historical, cultural, and economic impact crypto has had on the world. If you like what you're hearing or just want to drop us a line, be sure to hit us up on social media at The Mission HQ. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Mission Daily. Today, we are joined by one of my favorite people, Laura Shin. She's someone that I followed from the very early days. She had her own podcast called Unchained. Welcome to the show, Laura. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I want to jump right into it because there's a ton of stuff I want to talk to you about. Um, But first, I kind of want to know your journey with getting into crypto. I think it started back in 2015, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's when I first learned it. Well, actually, that's not true. Okay, so the very first time I learned about this was in 2011. And it's a really funny story because somebody that I worked with mentioned Bitcoin and I hadn't heard of it. But the way that she described it, I got the picture of like some kind of video game money, but that basically the way that you would win the money was that you would solve math problems. And back when I was doing math, it was like even before kind of like graphing calculators in the math classroom were a thing. So I was imagining like literally with like a pen and paper, like trying to solve a math problem and then you would win these coins. And um, obviously that's like completely different from what Bitcoin actually is. That's not what it is. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so it wasn't like the world's best explanation, but um, then... So what happened was, you know, so I've been a journalist my whole career. And then at the time, so in 2011, I was covering personal finance and I was still covering that in 2015. But my main client at that time was Forbes. I was a freelancer, but they were kind of the the main publication I worked for. And my editors knew I was pretty bored, frankly, with the personal finance. You know, by then I'd been covering it for four years and, you know, just... I kind of already knew stuff like so it just felt like oh am I gonna write another article using different words on the same topic like you know I I just really don't want to do that so they offered me kind of a bone they were like hey we want to do something covering fintech uh we want to do this Forbes fintech 50 list why don't you head up the list with another reporter So she and I just divided the list into categories and one of them was digital currencies and I took that one and became obsessed at that point. (laughs) So yeah, I've been covering it almost for for four years now. Awesome. So I consider you at the front lines of all things crypto now. So when you first got into it, what did the scene look like then? Like what kind of, you know, 
players were in there? Like, who did you follow and how different is it today? It's really, really different, which is kind of funny because that was the era of what they call blockchain, not Bitcoin. And even some people today actually kind of espouse that view. And what that phrase means is that this technology is going to be really disruptive. But the way that this disruption will happen is that it's going to make the existing financial institutions much more efficient, more efficient and cheaper. And it will enable them to offer a lot of products and services that they've not been able to offer before. And that technologies like Bitcoin or the assets themselves are really not that important. And actually, in the four years since then, frankly, even as early as 2016, that view started to change. And there were some people who even in 2015 really thought that that was baloney. And they frankly were vindicated in kind of midway through 2016 is when I started to see the inklings of this. But then 2017 is really sort of what cemented that where I think now after the mania of 2017, you don't have this question hanging over the space uh, that used to hang over it, which is, will this survive? Is there anything to these crypto assets? I think certainly there are people now, um, in fact, probably a lot of people, uh, and not just in the rarefied sectors of, you know, the VC world or, um, you know, just deep in the pockets of where the, the all the developers hang out in Silicon Valley. But you know, everyday people in like Korea and just taxi drivers in the US and people in China and Japan, they all kind of believe in this future as well. And certainly, obviously, adoption is still very small. But just the fact that it was able to kind of trickle out to the mainstream in that way. And then now we're seeing bigger financial institutions get in this space. So now you have places like Fidelity that are saying they're going to purchase and store and trade at crypto assets like Bitcoin and Ether for their clients. And now we're starting to see things like these, you know, big endowments like the Yale and MIT and Stanford endowments are are investing in these assets. So so the space has changed quite dramatically since the early days, actually. Although what I would say is that a lot of the big players and technologists that were around back then, they're still around today. Yeah, I love the people that I saw way back in the day when I first bought my first little Bitcoin who are still around. And a lot of them are actually being proven correct and even kind of predicted, okay, Bitcoin's going to have like a pretty turbulent journey and we need to expect that. And the people who believe in it most are just going to hang in there and they'll see, you know, it will, something will work out. Maybe it might not be Bitcoin. Maybe it might not be, you know, Ethereum or Litecoin, but something will work out. And I love seeing the people who just kind of like have stuck it out and just stayed up like yourself, but it's, yeah, it's been great. So terminology is a big thing where I feel like people kind of mix up Bitcoin and blockchain and things like that. How would you explain Bitcoin in a very layman's term and then blockchain? Just so everyone's on the same page as we're moving through this interview. So Bitcoin is actually two things. And uh, sometimes, like, frankly, actually, I think this is confusing for readers. But sometimes if you're reading an article, you might notice that sometimes the writer will capitalize Bitcoin and other times they'll have it lowercase. And the reason for that is that at least in some publications, Bitcoin with a capital B is the network. And that is the network that enables you to send a digital asset, in this case, a Bitcoin, from yourself to 
somebody maybe all the way in China. And to do that in 10 minutes, paying little to no fees and not having to use a bank, which I mean, and and like if you wanted to do a payment that was like a million dollars, you could do that in Bitcoin, again, for very little money. And again, just as fast, but there's literally no way you could do that in in the banking world, right? Like for international wire transfers, especially if you're moving even between more obscure corridors, then it can even take longer than a week and be even more expensive. But even just from here to China, which probably is a pretty popular corridor, like that can still take a week. And what's crazy too, is that you wouldn't actually know how much you're going to pay in fees in advance because there are all these sort of middlemen along the way that take their little cut. So it's not until the money arrives and the person says to you, oh, well, you were going to send me a million, but I only got like 999000 and, you know, whatever and change. Like, so anyway, so that's uh, Bitcoin with a capital B. That's the network. And Bitcoin with a lowercase b is the currency. That's the, the token that's native to the Bitcoin network. And so the Bitcoin white paper described this system, this combination system as a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. But Bitcoin, the digital asset, actually has kind of multiple properties. And so, yes, of course, you can use it as a digital cash or electronic cash. And when I say that, I literally mean cash. So if you lose the keys to your Bitcoin, yep. like it it's is gone. gone. There is no bank of Bitcoin where you can call and be like, hey, can you restore my Bitcoins? Or or yep. if somebody, you know, hacks your bitcoins like you can't call them be like can you reverse that transaction you know that does not exist so when i say cash i literally mean cash but then the other thing is that bitcoin or or the the bitcoin digital asset has a fixed supply of 21 million units and so a lot of people are also treating bitcoin like a sort of digital gold because of this scarcity that it has. And so in a certain way, like actually what's very interesting is you can think of the Bitcoin network as this ledger and that the Bitcoins that are part of this ledger are almost like grabbing a little piece of real estate. You know, it's like there's only going to be 21 million units. Um, However, actually, so when I say 21 million Bitcoins, Bitcoin, the the currency itself is actually divisible out to eight decimal places. So, so it's not like only 21 million people can own a Bitcoin. Like you can own fractions of Bitcoin. I've, I've had friends who've asked me that, but yes, you yep. can definitely own fractions of Bitcoins. And so then when you ask me what blockchain is, so a blockchain is basically like this ledger, but instead of the kind of ledger that you think of, you know, maybe that your bank holds. So like, let's say that you, you know, I want to send you a million dollars. I'm being very generous yes, today. <laughs> <laughs> and what would happen normally if we did that through the the banking system is that then, you know, my bank would debit my account and your bank would credit your account and the two banks would have to compare the ledgers and make sure that they sync up and that, you know, the the debits and credits match. But with Bitcoin or or I mean, really any of these crypto assets, the blockchain is essentially one ledger that is sort of held worldwide. And what I mean by that is that computers all over the world run copies of the ledger and they update the status of the ledger every uh, certain interval. So like with Bitcoin, that interval is 10 minutes, but with some of the other blockchains, it's shorter. Like with Litecoin, which you mentioned, it's two and a half minutes or with Ethereum, it's 15 seconds. So it really, it just sort of depends on how the blockchain is set up. But that essentially is held in the cloud by these computers. That's why, like I said, there's no central 
authority you can contact to reverse something, but it's basically just this ledger where we can all agree. And if, let's say, there was one computer that had a different version of the ledger, then essentially the majority of the ledgers would sort of override that. But you can do things which, you know, this maybe gets gets a little bit into the weeds, but I think it's important for people to know because people often talk about hacks of, you know, the blockchain or of the crypto space. But essentially what is more likely to happen instead of a hack is what they call like a 51% attack. And we've actually seen yep. this on some of the blockchains that have that are less popular essentially because they're easier to attack. And the way that you do an attack is, so let's say I'm going to make up numbers, but let's say there's like 100 computers running the Bitcoin blockchain. It's actually in, in the tens of thousands, I think. But let's say it was just 100. So then in order to kind of like try to commandeer the ledger and change it in a way that's, you know, in your favor. So maybe, maybe I'm thinking, oh, I shouldn't have given Stephanie that $1 million. Like what a mistake. So then what I have to do is I have to get control for the hypothetical. Um, let's say it's actually 50 computers that are on the, the Bitcoin network. So then what I do to reverse that transaction, the $1 million I sent you, is I get 51 computers, hook them up to the Bitcoin network, and then I try to force my version of the ledger. Now, frankly, I would have to do it like in a very quick period of time because once you do that, you can only really undo like maybe a block or two. It's it's actually, you, there's not a ton you can do. But essentially that is kind of like how you gain control of the blockchain. And because for at least the popular blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum, it's so hard to get that amount of computer power that's what makes them secure. Got it. And that hacking of at least the Bitcoin blockchain, that has not happened because it's so huge, correct? Exactly. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about um, you hear people getting hacked and it's actually maybe their wallets getting hacked or maybe the exchanges getting hacked or them losing, you know, like you were talking about their keys or something like that. But that's not actually being hacked. That's, I mean, it is in one sense, but it's not the actual blockchain getting hacked. Exactly. Yeah. There, I mean, there has been so much news of different aspects of the crypto ecosystem being hacked. And so for everyday people who maybe aren't very familiar with the ins and outs of it, they might think that Bic the Bitcoin blockchain itself or some of these other blockchains have been hacked, but that's actually not the case. So the one question that a lot of people are asking is around ICOs because, you know, we're in Silicon Valley and a lot of startup founders around here and ICOs is initial coin offerings, correct? And so I was yeah. hoping you could give a little bit of background on what that is and why there was so much hype in the beginning, why I'm not really hearing about it now as much and where you see it going forward from here. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so this is probably going to be a somewhat long answer. Go for it. Um, but I see a lot of different trends that kind of came together probably that led to that huge media. And one is maybe that for kind of like ground floor investments that is it has tended to be restricted to what's called accredited investors where they have a certain amount of net worth or they have high incomes. And so everyday people have been watching this, you know, tech boom and like all these people getting rich, um, but they haven't really been able to participate in the way that maybe they did in the dot 
dot-com era where a lot of companies that were early in that in that trend did also IPO early. So like Yahoo and Google and Amazon or whatever. But then kind of like the more recent wave of tech companies that have gotten really big have tended to stay private quite a bit longer. Um, here we are now, you know, like Lyft is IPOing, but I, I don't remember how old they are, but like, you know, Uber still hasn't IPO'd in there. I forget something like, I don't even know, 10 years old or whatever. Um, and there's others like it, you know, like Airbnb. And then, you know, if you couple that with the financial crisis, like I think, and also just other economic factors, I think there were some people who were kind of hungry for returns and who felt like maybe economically they were stagnating. So that's sort of like just the backdrop that isn't like maybe a direct reason why the ICO thing took off. But one of the things that's always been very fascinating to me is that the first really big indication that we got that like this could be huge was what happened with the DAO, which was DAO, D-A-O stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And that was this like quasi venture fund <laughs> that was decent- quote unquote decentralized, you know, air quotes, in the sense that it was a smart contract and it was supposed to be created in this way where like essentially you would put in some money, you would contribute Ether and then you would get back DAO tokens. And then those would enable you to vote on these like different investment opportunities and then, you know, enjoy the returns from those. Without being an accredited investor, right? Exactly. Like everyday people could do it. And it was available to anybody all over the world, right? And it raised $150 million in a month, which, you know, that just blew past like any other previous crowdfunding. And so what was ironic to me was that that happened at the same time that the, do you know the the Jobs Act rules um, where- Explain. It's nope. like, okay, so basically, actually, for, I'm just blanking on what the origin of the Jobs Act rules are, but essentially- at some point years before, there had been this idea that, okay, we need to kind of like codify the rules around crowdfunding. But it took so long for that all to go, you know, to be passed that finally that by the time it was passed, it literally happened like within a day or two of the DAO thing. And the rules are so restrictive. It's like, you know, you can only raise 1 million if you meet these criteria, or it's like 5 million with these criteria. And it's just like, it's very restrictive. And like, even though some of them do enable you to kind of like uh, sell to everyday people, even then like the numbers of people that you can approach are just very small. And so, so it was just like ironic when I was like watching that happen and, and then watching the DAO and I was like, whoa, when you use blockchain technology and there's like no regulation and it's global, like yep. this can be massive, right? So uh, anyway, this is like a long prelude to explain. So essentially what an initial coin offering is, is it's kind of like a cross between a crowd sale, like a, a normal, you know, Kickstarter type thing and an IPO, right? And those are actually quite different things just the way that they're normally done because normally a crowd sale is done for uh, a project where like, hey, like we have this idea. Do you like this kind of, you know, vision that we're painting, pitch in money and we'll build it, you know, like the Pebble Watch or, you know, this, a documentary or, you know, whatever it might be. And an IPO, of course, happens when it's like a company that has, I mean, granted, I was going to say, I think there were times earlier when it was generally like profitable companies, but I I think in recent, (laughs) yeah, in recent times, it's even shifting where you may not even need that. But, but anyway, the point is that when you do an IPO, like obviously there's a lot of rules around that and you also get certain rights as a shareholders, as a shareholder, but you know, those are functioning companies. They have at least revenue, if not profits, right? 
So there's obviously this huge spectrum, but what the ICO was doing was like this mishmash where it was allowing people who, yeah, were not accredited investors to get in on the ground floor of things that had not, well, actually it depends because some of the ICOs or some of the ICO issuers had actually developed quite a bit of a network and then others, they were literally, all they did was write a paper and propose something yep. and they, you know, raised millions. So it, there was wide variance even just within that. But then, you know, what happens is they sell it and once the token is trading, then it's essentially public. So even if it is like this tiny little project where they barely have anything going, like they already have like a price and a market cap and there are people that are, you know, trading that. So that's essentially what the initial coin offering was. And I think the reason that it just really took off, like I said, is that because there were no restrictions, like all you basically needed was like a little bit of Bitcoin and Ether and knowledge of like where to send the money. And, you know, if there's anything I've learned with blockchain technology, it's that, yeah, the money can move across borders and it won't take you a week to get your money to China, like the way that it does if you use the banking system. So you know, things were just moving really fast. And that's basically just everyone was like, hey, like I got rich from Bitcoin or, or you know, I got rich from Ether. This is going to be the next Bitcoin or the next Ether. And, and they were telling their friends and their friends saw like, oh, you know, my friend got rich, you know, maybe I should buy a token. And so I think those, all those factors played in together. And then, yeah, now I think a lot of those people realize like, oh, maybe that wasn't such a good idea now that, you know, I, put in like a thousand bucks and now it's only worth 10 bucks or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully people didn't put in anything they couldn't lose. Yes. But I think some people did. Yeah. What happened with the DAO, the DAU, when regulators came in and started putting in these rules because it's like a worldwide thing? How are regulators going to even control what these ICOs are doing or try and regulate something that they is pretty dang hard to regulate, especially if it's like a U.S. centric regulation? Yeah. So what ha so what was very interesting about the DAO was that <laughs> and this is why I just need to caveat that like anybody who's interested in this stuff needs to remember at all times that the whole thing is like very experimental right now. <laughs> so you could lose your money at any time for any given number of reasons. Like yep. I just cannot emphasize that enough. Yeah, the people who like really understand what's going on are just always counseling people like please, like this yeah. is just experimental. But anyway, so the DAO smart contract did have a bug in it that somebody exploited. And some people call it a quote unquote hack, but it's not really hack because like the code let them do it. Like they weren't breaking anything. It was literally just that the smart contract was poorly written, you know. So what happened was when they exploited that bug, they were able to pilfer, a uh, sorry, uh, 50 million out of the 150 million. Oh my gosh. One and person, you think? Oh, we, I mean, we don't know. Oh, man, that's crazy. Yeah. I, or, you know, maybe somebody does know. I, I don't know. I, I would need to ask if they think it was one person or a group. Yeah. But, but anyway, so this caused a lot of consternation in Ethereum, as you could imagine, because a huge portion of, you know, users were, had put their money into this thing and then now it was like going bad immediately. So what happened was Ethereum at that point was actually less than a year old. The network had just launched something like 11 months earlier. So the community decided like, hey, you know what? Everything's brand new and, you know, sort of like growing pains, whatever. And they and they were in favor of like trying to retrieve the funds for people. And the way that they did that was by doing what's called a hard fork. Mm -hmm. And what that means is it's essentially like 
taking, you know, everything that had happened in Ethereum up until that point, but just like pretending like a certain part of it hadn't happened. And what I mean by that is the point at which they forked. So if if the Ethereum blockchain is like, you know, this time stamped ledger, it's sort of like a history going back to the first block that was uh, mined when, when the Ethereum network launched, then what they did was they just, you know, went back to like a block before the DAO hack. Mm-hmm. And then they pretended like the history after that point didn't happen. And then <laughs> And used what the le- the status of the ledger was before the DAO to to move forward. However, the original ledger where the DAO hack happened, it remained alive, and the people who kept that one going called that network Ethereum Classic. Mm-hmm. So the the actual Ethereum now that we call it is actually this like fork yep. of the original, and then. Yeah, the original goes by the name Ethereum Classic, which I know is super confusing. But <laughs> but anyway, the point is, so going back to regulators. So regulators actually didn't even have the time or or anything to, to do anything before, like essentially people quote unquote got their money back, right? Because mm-hmm. the community decided to do the hard fork. So about a year later, they came out with a report saying, look, uh, the DAO tokens were securities and this whole thing was a securities offering. And um, here's the reason why. And essentially, they use uh, this test that's been in use since, like, I think the 1930s or something called the Howey test, which comes out of this case, I think something like SEC versus Howey. But that is the the four prongs of this so-called Howey test are what's used to determine whether or not something's a security. And so uh, essentially, the four prongs are that has to be an investment in a common enterprise with an expectation of profits that would be dependent upon an identifiable promoter or identifiable party. The DAO report walks through all the different prongs and like shows how the DAO and the DAO tokens met all four of those prongs. Because if you have like three of the prongs, then it's not a security. But like if you have four, or and sorry, there's other things that are securities, but I'm just talking about the type that would apply to, uh, to tokens. And essentially, this was like a nice way of them kind of like laying it out for people. Like, this is how we would look at cases like this. And yet, because the DAO, in a sense, had been rolled back and like there hadn't really been damage from it, then they they didn't end up like having any kind of enforcement action against anybody because like it had sort of been resolved in a certain way, right? So then what happened after that was that now they have been issuing enforcement actions, starting with like the most obvious things, like the obvious scams and frauds, you know, also just like choosing certain rules. Like uh, there were some celebrity promoters who did yeah. not disclose that they were paid for their tweets, like things like that. So they've been kind of picking these various examples that sort of sort of demonstrate the different principles that they would use. However, I actually just interviewed the SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce, mm-hmm. who um, she's actually known as Crypto Mom because um, <laughs> That's she- That's great. <laughs> wrote, yeah, I think it all started when the SEC decided not to approve a, a Bitcoin ETF application, and she wrote a dissent. And the dissent basically said, hey, this decision was based on kind of like disapproval of Bitcoin and the Bitcoin markets. But like we should not be in that position of making judgments based on the underlying asset. We should just look at like we we should enable investors to make that choice and just we, we should make sure that they have the information they need to decide whether or not something's a good investment or not. But the point is like because the dissent was written in this way where like it was something the Bitcoin community felt like they could get behind. They nicknamed her Crypto Mom. But I asked her in the interview, 
So you've done all these enforcement actions, you know, that are pretty specifically targeted against, like, it's almost like you're setting an example or kind of setting precedent. Now, what about everybody else who did a lot of the stuff that, you know, these issuers that you targeted also did, but you haven't done an enforcement action against them? And I'm not going to, you know, be, I'm not going to try to paper over anything. Like she didn't really answer it. She essentially, so one thing that did happen recently was that there was a token team that quote unquote self-reported, meaning they watched all the enforcement actions happening and they were like, okay, we did the same thing. And they went to the SEC and said, you know what? We are also guilty of this um, or uh, guilty. I I don't know if that has a legal connotation, (laughs) so maybe I won't use that word, but, but they said, hey, we did the same thing. And so the SEC kind of like agreed, you know, I, I think they, you know, do some vetting to figure that out. But then they actually didn't impose a financial penalty the way that they had on the others. So I, it's actually not fully clear to me how they're going to proceed. The one thing that she did say is that the staff is actually working on guidance. So they probably will release something that's going to give more clarity. And then there's this other thing going on in Congress. So there was this bill that was proposed I don't know, in, in the fall or earlier in the winter or something like that, called the Token Taxonomy Act that would create a sort of like this carve out for tokens saying essentially that uh, you could have digital tokens that are not securities. And there are other things in it, like having to do with taxes around you know crypto tokens. So that's going to be reintroduced next week. I Actually, maybe by the time this podcast comes out, it will have been introduced. Um, so who knows? That could also be another way. She did also, like basically people actually should probably just listen to the episode. She probably explains it better than I can, but there are different ways that clarity can be brought. And one is through Congress and one is through the SEC. And they differ a little bit. Like when it's through Congress, I think it's maybe more prescriptive. And then when it's the SEC, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Just you, you would have to listen to that. She did describe what the difference is there, but it sounds like kind of there are these two avenues right now where it looks like the government might go down. So interesting. Okay. So how do you stay ahead of all this stuff? Whether it's, I mean, I'm thinking about when like the tax rules came out around crypto and I was like, oh my gosh, like there's who, who the heck knows what I'm supposed to do? Like, when do I talk about if I bought it or sold it or like, you know, and then the accountants didn't know. And it feels like, how do you even stay ahead of that? What do you look into with these new rules or when you're looking into a new cryptocurrency or you're, or you're researching it? Like, what kind of things do you look into to make sure you feel like you understand it well enough or, you know, know whether maybe what more to look into or if you want to move forward with something or if you want to buy something? Not that we're giving buying advice to anyone here, but like, what do you look into to feel like you have a good, well-rounded knowledge around that cryptocurrency or the new ruling or something like that? Big question, I know. I think... I think one thing that would surprise maybe some people who listen to my show is because I notice this a lot when kind of like everyday people talk to me. Everybody seems to think I know a lot more than I do. And I really, I really have to say that, especially with my long show, Unchained, I tend to like at that point do a really deep dive to, you know, understand everything and like ask really good questions. And also when I do the podcast, I really like to have. Like, like, did uh, have you ever performed music? Nope. Have like, you? Did you ever play an instrument? Oh, okay. Oh, I did play. Yeah, flute I, I used to in middle school, so I mean, I'm, I'm basically an expert. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, I like kind of when I'm prepping for a podcast. It reminds me a little bit about when I used to like perform music when I was yeah, like playing an instrument when I was younger because beforehand, you know, you just would ha- visualize like how everything should go, like 
oh, you know, I need to take a breath there so that I have like enough in my lungs to sustain that note or, you know, oh, I want to get like really soft there or, you know, like you just have a visualization of like how it should go. So when I do the podcast, I like to kind of already be able to predict what what the person's going to say when I ask certain questions. And then if they don't say certain things, maybe I'll jump in and explain or, you know, so so anyway, all, all I'm trying to say is that at that point, I do deep dives, you know, on whatever I'm covering. But then there's all these other things that maybe, you know, I haven't done a show on it yet or, you know, whatever. And so at that point, I'm just like reading stuff like crypto Twitter is extremely active. You know, I always see there what people are talking about. I subscribe to a number of really good newsletters and you know, I go through and like kind of read like what do these other people that I respect, what are they highlighting as what they think is important? You know, of course, I mean, the main thing, frankly, is like I have really good sources. And because of my training as a journalist, I can always figure out who the good sources are. You know, you sort of know when you're talking to somebody if you've like if they're saying things that you haven't heard before and if they, you know, have something new to offer versus like if it's somebody where, yeah, you kind of heard this before, or, you know what I mean? So so all those things come into play. And so like, for instance, I did do an episode on taxes, as you mentioned, yep. but I just knew like who some of the people were who were already experts on taxes around crypto. And I just made sure to get them for the show. Yep. I think I sound super lame by saying this, but that was one of my favorite episodes that you did because I was going through the whole tax issue and not even knowing like, oh my gosh, do I even report this? Like, I don't know. And <laughs> when you did that tax episode, it was like perfect timing because I'm like, oh, I should do something because I, you know, I think I sold my Bitcoin or turned into Ethereum to buy Stellar. And like, I did this whole thing that to me, I was like, I don't know how to report that because when does it mean you have a gain based on how you transferred the, you know, the cryptocurrencies between each other. And then I listened to your episode and I don't think I still fully understand it, but at least I know I should do something and I should report it. So that was one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, a lot of people commented on that. And I think it was good timing for the episode because the year 2017 was one where a lot of people had gains. Yep. And so that was the first time that they were like, and so many new people had come into the space that that was one of the times when people were like, oh, I really need to know this. Yep. No, it was so impeccable yeah. timing. It was great to have that. <laughs> So you've talked to a ton of people in the crypto space. And when I talk to people who are outside of it, a lot of them, you can hear the term criminal money or, you know, people think it's sketchy. And I mean, it is true. There are quite a bit of sketchy people who can kind of be pretty loud in the space sometimes where you're like, man, I wouldn't trust you for a second, of course. But there's a lot of people who are actually doing it, you know, for the right reasons. And it really can move the whole industry, whether the financial industry or businesses or everything forward. What are your thoughts around getting the right right conception around the industry? Like, what are we moving towards a place where it's going to be more trustworthy? Or how can we gain more trust in this industry to make more people believe in it or be willing to, you know, buy some cryptocurrency or even think about it? So that is going to require a lot of different things to happen. I actually think, so some of the things that are happening now that could probably legitimize the space more are that we are seeing the regulators and law enforcement come in and deal with some of the criminals. That's been happening for quite a while, frankly. Probably one of the most famous examples of crime happening in the Bitcoin space was with Silk Road, which was an online drug marketplace. And it was the first of its kind. And the reason that it was 
that it was enabled, like the reason that for the first time ever, you could literally just click a few buttons on your computer and then have illegal drugs shipped to your house through the postal service was because Bitcoin finally existed. You know, that was uh, this digital currency that enabled you to transact outside the banking system. So the the man who is thought to have created that Russ Ulbricht is now serving a life sentence in prison. And so, you know, he's not the only one that has been put in jail for some of the activity that he's, uh, that he's done using cryptocurrencies and crypto assets. I think so it's 2019. Now, so I guess a year and a half ago, there was uh, somebody else who was arrested. He was one of the operators of a Bitcoin exchange Um, there was a big hack of an exchange, Mt. Gox. I think it's the biggest one ever. And some of the Bitcoins that were stolen from that were laundered through this man's exchange. His name is Alexander Vinnick, and he ran an exchange in in Europe that had very lax controls of what they call know your customer regulations Mm -hmm. uh, that a lot of the financial institutions have to deal with. But then the other thing, so aside from kind of like, you know, these governmental actions, I think the other thing that would help legitimize the space, frankly, is just the developers who are working on this creating something that people actually really use. And and when I say that, I mean beyond just for speculative reasons. And we are yep. seeing a lot of kind of glimpses of people kind of finding practical applications for this, nothing really used on a wide scale yet. So so when I say practical, um, I actually would lump games in with that. And so some of the early phenomena that, that took off quickly actually were around games as well. So a little over a year ago, CryptoKitties took off as a phenomenon. And again, that was a new thing. The fact that you could own a digital object and you know, because previously, like on the internet, if you had something like copies of it could easily be distributed. But with CryptoKitties for the first time, they created kind of these fun, unique digital objects that people could own. And on top of that, they could breed the kitties and make different kitties and uh, and then sell those kitties. And so when I say practical, I, I include games. And so we are starting to see there are some other teams that are trying to come up with novel ideas for games. And I actually wonder if that might be one of the first avenues through which this space becomes more legitimate. And the reason for that is because people who play games online are already used to dealing in digital assets and to ascribing value to them. Yeah, they're used to exactly like you said, having value associated with digital coins or yeah, winning things like winning digital, basically digital currencies. Right. Like World of Warcraft goals. There are a couple of prominent crypto um, VCs and entrepreneurs who actually have a background in video game assets. Back in I, I think the '90s and early 2000s, they were they had companies where, for instance, they would have video game players in Asia play the games to earn these, you know, the swords or whatever. And then they would sell them to players like in the West, maybe who didn't want to spend the time to earn those items. So I do know some teams that are working on different games. But yeah, nothing. I think think my younger brother would be the one buying those swords. I remember (laughs) he'd always be like, telling me like, man, I just like got to buy all this and I got to level up in a game and do all this stuff. And now we know it's from those people who are earning it. <laughs> yeah, I literally just a couple days ago interviewed a team that's working on something. So I know and and there's another person who 
she's actually in an incubator right now and she's they're coming out with something as well. So I know a lot of people are working on it. So we will see. <laughs> okay, got it. So what do you think when, you know, big, well-respected people say very negative things about the crypto market? So if we think about, you know, Jamie Dimon, JP Morgan CEO, always has something negative to say about Bitcoin and blockchain and things like that. And it's hard as because especially I'm thinking about like my parents are like, well, Jamie Dimon said this. And then if you actually look, it's like, okay, well, JP Morgan's, you know, has been investing in crypto stuff for a long time now. And now they're creating their own JP Morgan type of crypto coins or whatever it is. Like, how do you view people like that having such a big influence on the market? And should they be more careful with what they say or what they, you know, how it's influencing other people who are listening to them or positive, both, whether they're either you know, you've got the celebrities sometimes who are hyping it up, hyping up their own cryptocurrencies and things like that. And then sometimes bad things happening or the people who are saying very negative things and maybe in turn actually investing in that exact thing that they're telling the whole market, like you don't want to touch it. This is like a scam. And then they're actually investing themselves in it or well, or their firm is. So in the case of Jamie Dimon in particular, what he was doing was a little bit different because yeah, I, I don't I even to this day, I still don't know if he believes in crypto assets. I think he's he's still kind of in that camp of blockchain, not Bitcoin, at least as far as I know. I don't know him personally at all. But just with the moves that JP Morgan is making, definitely they are, you know, working on their own what they would call a private blockchain, which is sort of like I mentioned earlier how some of the banks are looking at the technology and saying, Hey, we can use this to kind of do things more efficiently and do things we couldn't do before. But then with the JPM coin, that's what they call a stable coin, which means it's not a crypto asset that you know could rise and fall in value. It's just a digital representation of a dollar. And again, it's still in line with what I was saying earlier about how a lot of these banks view it as a way to increase their efficiency. And frankly, if JPM, JP Morgan Chase has a digital version of a dollar, like, yeah, of course, it's going to make a lot of their, you know, backend processes more efficient for the reasons I was explaining before about, you know, how if I try to give you a payment, like, because you always hear this thing about like clearing and settling and like, I'm sure everybody knows like, oh, sometimes I make a transaction with my bank, but then it actually doesn't kind of settle until three or five days later. And, you know, I, I'm sure everybody's familiar with stuff like that. So just when you have a digital version of a dollar, yes, it can make a lot of things more efficient. But as for your actual question about, you know, what it is that people should think about kind of prominent people making statements about crypto assets either way, uh, personally, I would say, and this it just applies for any kind of money or investment that anybody might deal with, which is that when it comes to your money, only you know kind of like what your financial goals are or what your priorities are. So like if you have, you know, credit card debt, like, of course, you know, don't don't be like, oh, so-and-so said Bitcoin's a great investment. I'm going to like put some of those money I don't have in a bit. Like, of course, no, no, no. Yeah. Like, be sensible about your money, right? So just whatever kind of like normal uh, personal finance rules that you follow or philosophy that you follow for managing your money, like that would apply here. And so just do not pay attention to what famous people are saying about anything because like it really just comes down to like what's your personal financial situation. And yeah, I mean, of course, I know a lot of people too who have 
a lot of discretionary money and maybe they are, you know, full up with their emergency savings and they're on the road to a comfortable retirement and they have some money that they can put into kind of novel investments, you know, risky things. They might want to do it for educational purposes. Maybe they're the kind of person who really enjoys learning about these new technologies and then putting their money into it to sort of learn about it more. Like, you know, there there's a total spectrum, but whether or not any famous person is saying this is good or bad really honestly should not play into their decision. Yep. Yeah. I love that. The fact of just like do due diligence on anything you would ever put your money in. Because <laughs> exactly. I remember back when I bought Bitcoin, I think it was 2012. And I had no idea what it was. And I just kind of considered I'm going to buy a couple of these. And if it like if I lose all my money, that's OK. This is play money. And who cares what happens to it? And I think that's like the way to go into it right now anyways, when, you know, the price is always fluctuating. Like if you actually need that money, probably not best to just, (laughs) you know, dump your whole life savings into something where, um, you know, maybe that might not, Bitcoin might not be the thing that lasts. It might be something else. Like you never know. Um, So yeah, I think that's great advice to like do your own due diligence with everything. Exactly. In the space right now, I feel like there's not a ton of women. How does it feel being one of the leading women in the space? And do you think it's getting better Like, are you finding more women to talk to about this or, you know, at conferences? Like, are you finding your own little tribe when you go to these conferences or meetups and things like that? Yeah, this is a very interesting question because it's honestly actually a little bit hard to answer. And what I mean when I say that is that actually in the beginning, I don't think I had a very strong awareness of the fact that I was one of the few women because a lot of this happens digitally online. So I would only really feel it when I went to these conferences. And yeah, I just, there like, there would be so few women and it would be like me and then like maybe, you know, a handful of other women and then like all these guys. And then, then you become yeah. very aware of it. But online, yeah. Um, maybe I was less aware. And then maybe also because when I was doing interviews, it was often just like me and one person. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess like maybe I would have had an awareness that like most of the people I'm interviewing are men. But in that dynamic where it's just one on one, you, you know, you're you don't have a feeling of being a minority because you're just talking to a person. But uh, in terms of me, especially now with a podcast where, you know, I only get to interview one or two people at any given time as somebody who is aware kind of like how you know, there really aren't as many women as as you would see just in any kind of other community. At a certain point, I did start just trying to keep mental track of, you know, who I was interviewing and whether they were men or women. But then I remember there was like one period where I was sort of busy and I wasn't really thinking about it as much. And then when I wasn't that focused on it, then then like there was like a period of two and a half months or something where they were all men. And I was like, whoa, because there were so many, there are actually so many more women to interview now than there were four years ago. Um, but what's nice now is that, yeah, there are so many more women than there were a few years ago that it is much easier to have a good mix uh, on the podcast. And so sometimes they're just, you know, obviously just with random issues with scheduling, whatever, you can never make things like totally even. So there have been periods where there's been kind of like a streak of women all concentrated in roughly the same time period. What's funny is, of course, then people notice and they say things like, oh, I like, you know, that you're focusing on women, but but it's not, it's just like a random flukes of scheduling or whatever. Um, But it's nice nice that there are enough women now that 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 can happen, which of course it happens with the guys a lot, but nobody notices because there aren't that many. 
But one yep. other thing yeah. I wanted to say on this topic was just that I think that simply because in my personal view, socialization is a big reason why there aren't as many women in finance or in tech. But then now when you have the space that is both finance and tech, uh, I think it's become more extreme. So one thing that I often hear people say in the crypto space is something like, oh, there are no barriers to entry in Bitcoin and whatever. And I just get a little bit frustrated because I'm I'm kind of like, Okay, that in a vacuum, there are no barriers. But so for instance, the fact that it was a, a woman who told me about Bitcoin for the first time, right? You know, that's probably because I have more women in my life just because I am a woman. And men probably have more male friends and more men in their lives. And so if men were kind of like the original people that heard about this, and there are more men in finance and in tech, and they were hearing about this, then the likelihood that it would spread to women already from the beginning was lower. And so I'm I'm a little bit like, wait, how can you say there are no barriers? Like even just on a simple level, like even hearing about it for the first time, I feel like it's less likely if you're a woman. So I feel like people are super hard on you sometimes when I see like, okay, mainly men, when I see them on your Twitter and they're like, Laura was asking such mean questions. That's so rude. I'm like, you would never ask that to like, well, you would never say that to a lot of like men hosts when they're just asking normal questions and they're trying to understand. And then you ask like a good question. They're like, Laura's so mean. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, what I have noticed is um, sometimes in the comments uh, or in the reviews on the, uh, the podcast, they'll say like, you interrupt. And I've noticed that there, and I actually, I don't think I do interrupt very much. um, But but they get really mad about that. And then I did notice, do you ever listen to Kara Swisher's podcast? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Her reviews are filled with people like angry at her interviewing. And she, it's true. She probably does more than the average person. But I can tell because, you know, obviously I'm analyzing it a certain way. I know what's going on is that, you know, because this happens to me too. Like I'll ask a question and then a person is just like filling it with words, yeah. but they're not answering the question. And so like, I know what Kara will do is she'll like jump in and then just like force them to kind of answer what she had asked. Yeah. But the thing is, so what's interesting is that her colleague, Peter Kafka, who does Recode Media, mm-hmm. he interrupts a lot too, but literally none of the reviews ever mentioned that. And in fact, the only time that anybody ever mentioned interruption at all in his reviews is when someone was like, Kara Swisher could learn from you and like not interrupt as much. And I was like, wait, do you even listen to Peter's show? Because he's constantly interrupting people. I feel like that's a man um, versus women thing. Like a hundred percent when they're like, women should always just sit and listen. And men, yeah, that's, they need to interrupt to like get the good points in. Ah, side tangent. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. Side tangent. That's annoying. (laughs) And anyone who says that you ever interrupt is really silly. It is true that I do sometimes, but. But not in a rude manner. Yeah, I try not to. And often if I do it, you know, it's because like they've made a reference to something that and I'm not sure everybody on the yeah. listening will understand what that reference was to. So I, I might try to like just jump in and explain what that is. Yeah. Or, you know, no, I think I think the way that you do it is always perfect because that's always the questions that I think people who don't have full context on things are wondering, too. And a lot of times when you jump in and ask questions, I'm like, 
Yes, thank you, because not everyone knows these acronyms or not everyone knows like the recent news that just happened and we need a little bit of, you know, explaining behind it. I do that with Chad and Ian when they're sometimes going on tangents about things and I'm like, no one knows what you guys are talking about. So let's pull it back, exactly. back into the reality here and then, we, you know, let's ground everyone and then you can keep talking about whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. And I'm conscious that my listeners are listening when they're at the gym or mm-hmm. they're walking the dog or they're uh, commuting to work. And so they can't like whip out their phones and Google things, yeah. you know? So that's why I like, I try to to make sure. But there there are times when I've missed things. Like I'll listen to the tape at the end and I'll be like, oh shoot, I, I didn't catch that one. Yeah. But you know, whatever. Nothing can be 100% perfect, yeah. especially in audio. So yeah, I mean, yours are great. I've always liked them. So keep up the good work. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's when I first started listening to Unchained podcast that you host. And I liked it so much because you were a woman. And I didn't know at the time when I first started listening, I didn't know many other women who were even in the field. And you asked all the questions that I was thinking in my head where sometimes, you know, the men who did have their own podcasts or their own, you know, blogs and stuff weren't dumbing it down to a point that I actually could understand. And I feel like you were able to put your ego completely to the side and be like, no, I don't get it. No, I still don't get it. No, keep explaining it to me. And every time I was just like rooting for you, like, yeah, Laura, get him. Like, don't let them talk too technical. This is what we need to like expand, you know, listenership on this kind of stuff. So um, but agree that now the market looks so different. There's a lot of women who I've been following and stuff who are here now, which is great. But yeah, that's really cool to hear your thoughts on how it's been changing and evolving over the past couple of years. Yeah. Only one thing I so, would say about that is that, and I, so I'm not 100% sure about this, but but I think my podcast, if it wasn't the first, it's at least one of the only, if not the only crypto podcast that's done by a journalist. So that's another reason why when you were saying the questions that I asked, that's part of my training. Whereas I think a lot of the other ones are done by developers or finance people or, um, or frankly, like fans of just the space, but they're not trained journalists. So I think that's another reason why I would make sure to like, bring people along the way that I would in any article as well. Yeah, that's a good point. That's definitely true where and even other people too might be biased towards a certain, you know, one way or the other where, you know, you were always like, I'm willing to listen to both sides, which I think is crucial when especially for a new industry to kind of show that like I'm not decided either way. I'm just here to figure it out and interview the smartest people and we'll all figure it out together as as long as you guys come along with me, which I love. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah, that goes to what I was saying also about because some of the other podcasters and I'm not I, I don't want it to come across as like me dissing them or anything like that. But it's just there are certain things that they can do that I cannot do as a journalist and wouldn't do, frankly, stuff like like you kind of know which which coins they're a fan of or whatever. And frankly, I'm I'm not really a fan of any coins either. Yeah. It's more like as a journalist, I don't want to miss a story. So I'm open to like potentially anything happening. Like if there's anything I've learned covering the crypto space is definitely that things change very quickly. So right now there could be a coin that like to me kind of looks like there's nothing there, but who knows, you know, six months from now, I could be like, whoa, whoa, there's a lot happening here. So I cannot get fixed in viewpoints, but some of the other podcasters I know have, they make their kind of proclivities known. Um, So that's, I think, another way in which my show was like a little bit different. So you have a ton of guests on your shows who are, you know, obviously experts in the field. Have you heard a recurring theme or excitement towards a certain topic over, you know, the past couple months that you've been interviewing people? 
Oh, that's a good question. So I would say that different people are excited about different things. If you listen to my shows, definitely you'll notice I've been doing kind of a trend around DeFi, decentralized finance, yep. what some people call open finance and what other people call dope-fi. I'm like, I'm going to start <laughs> calling it that. That's really good name. <laughs> I know, but I'm a little bit like, okay, like we shook off the, you know, Bitcoin is drug money reputation and now you want to call the DeFi movement dope-fi? Dope-fi. Like, um, I like that. <laughs> so, um, so that's something uh, that I know a lot of people are excited about. And within that, uh, as you can probably tell, there's a lot of excitement around MakerDAO and DAI, the stablecoin, because frankly, that's sort of what is enabling this huge DeFi thing. I mean, honestly, actually, MakerDAO is like, it is DeFi in it, on its own. Like, I can't remember what percentage it, it makes up of the open finance on Ethereum, but it's like a huge percentage. Maybe explain that a um, bit, because I don't know enough about that. Oh, sorry. So the DAI stablecoin is very interesting because there's different types of stablecoins. There's the most basic, which is just like somebody has a dollar in a bank and gives you a digital dollar, right? So like uh, the Gemini US dollar is like that. The Paxos standard is like that. Uh, Tether, which is the first one, I think used to say at least something like that, that it had dollars in the bank. But now actually it, it appears maybe they don't have one to one dollars. Unclear. Uh, but anyway, there's a, there's a bunch that are structured like that. And then there's others... Oh, and I think USD Circle or Circle USD or whatever it's called or Center. God, I'm a little bit embarrassed. I'm blanking on the name, but um, but anyway, I think you know they they do something similar. Then there's a third. So I'm going to skip the second class because that's diet, and I'll just come back to explain that. The third class, which is even more out there, is one where it's like literally using monetary policy to try to create the peg, where you have different levels of. You would need three tokens for that. And then on either side, you incentivize people a different way to like buy or sell based on uh, what's happening to the peg at that moment. Mm -hmm. And that there was one project that was like that, that got shut down by the SEC because they were saying, you know, that the, not the dollar token, but the other tokens were like security. So anyway, the, the second category, the one that's kind of in between the two is this one where it's like uh, backed by collateral, which is uh, what the MakerDAO system is. So DAI is the stablecoin, but the way that a lot of people are creating the stablecoins is they put up collateral. And so let's say that you have some ether. And in fact, actually, that's the only thing you can put up right now to get DAI. I don't, I'm going to make it up. So let's say you have 150 DAI and you're like, or not DAI, sorry, ether. ether yep. And you put it up as collateral. And then you say, okay, I'm going to take out uh, so what would that be at that point? I think you, so you need a, a cushion of like 150%, I think. So maybe you could take out like 50, the US dollar equivalent of 50, 50 ETH or something. Anyway, so then this is called a collateralized debt position where yep. you kind of gave yourself a loan and you're getting these like digital dollars that you can use to do other things. And so frankly, actually, because uh, it looks like Ether price maybe has bottomed out and might go up. People are using it to buy more ether. It's it's like a way of leveraging. Um, uh -oh. but they, they can also do other things. Yeah, I know, crazy, right? Oh geez. Um, I worked at Fannie Mae back in the day, so this all scares me. A I know, bit. isn't that it, right? Exactly. <laughs> that feels too close to home for me. I know. I'm doing. I've done multiple podcasts where we talk about decentralized finance, and that theme has come up at least twice that I remember, maybe even three times. But yes, okay. I totally agree with you. But anyway, the point is that 
So you've essentially given yourself a loan. That's mm-hmm. kind of what's going on. Yep. And then the MakerDAO system, so there's this other token called MKR. And that's like this kind of governance token that is used to try to help keep the the dollar peg. And the MKR holders, you know, if they do a good job of, you know, keeping the system such that the die does maintain a dollar peg, then theoretically the value of their MKR tokens should go up. And so that's how they're they're trying to manage this. So because people can kind of like take this other money they have, the ether, and give themselves these the die stablecoin, they're actually putting those die into these other decentralized finance applications that oftentimes are also interest bearing themselves mm-hmm. because you actually have to pay was essentially an interest rate for opening one of these collateralized debt positions. But so let's say maybe your interest rate is like 2%. It's actually higher than that right now, but uh, like just I'm going to make it up and, and let's just say it's, you know, 2%. You can put the money into these other decentralized financial apl- applications that give you a higher return of like, you know, 6% or whatever. Or, or, you know, you can do, like I said, and buy more ether, whatever. People are doing all kinds of different things with it. But the point is just generally that when you look at the stats of the decentralized finance system, DAI makes up like 90% of it. I don't remember the exact percentage, but it's like a huge, huge percentage. Okay. Got so, it. So that's something yeah. that a lot of your guests have been talking about and we should yes. watch. Okay. Even though it sounds kind yeah. of scary. And, but. Oh, oh, and wait, but let me tell you a couple other things because yeah. there was actually just news recently about Coinbase Custody offering what's called staking, meaning that – so Coinbase is kind of like bread and butter so far has been, you know, allowing people to like buy and sell, which is sort of more in that speculative type of activity where you're essentially holding the asset and like waiting for it to appreciate or something. But there are all these new tokens where you can perform – a, a service to the network and and earn more tokens for it. And so Coinbase now will enable people to do that uh, on a couple of these different blockchains. They announced one and then they announced actually for MakerDAO is going to be the other one that they'll do in the coming months. So that actually probably this like staking as a service where like you can still have a company store your assets, but also participate in these networks, that's probably going to become a bigger trend, I would say. Yeah, that's Um, super interesting, especially thinking about new jobs of the future and just being able to help remotely and be able to earn money just by, you know, putting in your computing mm -hmm. power, your time. That's just a really interesting concept that, yeah, I'll have to follow closely. That's what my TEDx talk was about. I I said, like, the, the title was something like, how crypto will enable more people to be their own boss. Mm -hmm. And it talked about how, yeah, in the future, you know, if the visions that these entrepreneurs have come to fruition, then people should be able to plug into these different networks and offer different services and like be able to more easily just earn money on their own. Yeah. And that's, so yeah, but that's, that's all very far in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll have to think of ways to get people out of their house at that point and interact with others. (laughs) All right. So what is the craziest thing you've ever, someone's ever said to you on a podcast, like during an interview or that you've heard? Um, Because I've seen people on Twitter sometimes being like, oh my gosh, Laura's so mean. She asked hard questions in the interview and I've just seen some funny stuff. So what's the craziest thing you've heard either in an interview or has been said to you? So I don't know if this is crazy, but this was definitely my, so this was my favorite episode overall. And actually in a way, what was great about it was that this got into a really sticky intellectual area. And 
Uh, so I'll just set up the, uh, you know, what was going on and, and what happened. But essentially, this was my interview with CZ, who is Changpeng Zhao, and he is the CEO of Binance which is the number one most popular crypto exchange by trading volume. And it basically came out of nowhere in 2017. You know, there had been all these exchanges that had been around for a long time and had established, you know, kind of themselves in different ways and had kind of carved out different niches. But Binance basically raised $15 million in an ICO in the course of, shoot, he said on my podcast, I forget, it was something like two weeks or whatever. It's just like a crazy timeline. Like he, like he heard about ICOs and then like two weeks later was like having an ICO. And then, oh my gosh. um, Yeah. And then they launched Binance like very, so it it just, everything happened super fast. But anyway, the point is that one thing that they're known for is kind of regulatory arbitrage. And what I mean by that is like they, will move countries and the the servers of their exchange based on whether or not they think regulators are going to come after them. And so one thing that they're doing is getting really chummy and developing relationships with some of the countries that are very small that are welcoming these different crypto projects. And when I, I did like a little speech at the IMF and the I remember in the intro remarks I, I forget her title, but I know she's somebody high up at the IMF. And she said something about how we're already seeing a race to the bottom amongst regulators. And I think she was referring to these small uh, countries that are like open arms to the crypto projects and being like, hey, you know, you can do whatever you want here. Or, or you know, I'm I'm really exaggerating yeah. probably. But, but anyway, so CZ is developing relationships in these jurisdictions and setting up, you know, parts of his business there and stuff. And so what's interesting is that in the U.S., the regulators here have this concept that if you are serving American customers or American citizens, then you fall in our jurisdiction. So even though, you know, he was kind of like in China and then Japan and then in Malta and, you know, just moving around, because Binance did not have good restrictions against U.S. people using their exchange, I was pressing him on... The fact that actually he he probably will fall within the U.S. jurisdiction and, you know, for various reasons, like, you know, you could have violated these regulations and whatever. And so I was really pressing him on this issue and like, you know, asking him things like, are you scared to set foot in the U.S. and whatever. Um, but anyway, <laughs> oh so... Gosh. So this is the crazy part. And and this is just the part that I loved about the interview. I mean, there were so many, like, it, it was just so great because he really has strength in his convictions. And so just for everything I asked him, he had a really great rejoinder and really just believes that some of the regulations are dumb and like, that's why he doesn't want to play with them. And so at one point he said to me, he was like, you are basically like somebody who is telling me that even though I don't like hot weather, I have to live in Florida. <laughs> because, you know, I was, I was, you know, but it wasn't like I was saying you have to do that. But I was yeah. saying, oh, the, you know, the U.S. regulators per- will perceive that you fall in their jurisdiction. But anyway, so, so that was probably my, my favorite moment. I love that you turned that around to you. Like, why are you trying to force me into following regulations, <laughs> Laura? Like, stop it. <laughs> That's so awesome. Right. Oh, man. So to wrap things up, you have a new book coming out, right? And I want to hear what we can expect with your new book. Tell me a bit more about that. So actually, the book won't come out for about two, a little over two years. Um, but Oh, man. <laughs> I know, I know. 
books, first of all, take a long time to write, and then they take a long time to edit and get ready to uh, put in bookstores. So, but I am working on it, and it's it's told like a story. So hopefully that will make it appealing to people who aren't already in the crypto space. And when I say that, I mean, you know, there's kind of like two main kinds of crypto books. One is sort of just like a basic primer, like here's what Bitcoin is, here's what blockchain is, you know, kind of like what you had me do at the beginning. And then there's the other kind, which is telling things like a story with characters, you know, real life people, mm-hmm. but told in a way where you don't feel like you're ingesting a lot of information. And, you know, not that I expect my story, my book will be this good, but uh, some popular writers who people will think of, I'm sure when I describe this, are, are like Michael Lewis, who wrote like The Big Short and other things like that, where, yeah. you know, for instance, he was kind of helping people understand what was going on with collateralized debt obligations. Um, yes. <laughs> so, Such a fun topic. <laughs> yeah. So I am working on it now. And yes, I am finding that when you hook it into a story, people get the technology and yet they're not sort of having to absorb it in this way where it feels like they're in a classroom. Oh, man, I love that. I mean, we're definitely all about storytelling here at the mission and looping hard concepts into stories so people remember them. And that's the format that's proven to last over, you know, thousands of years. So yeah, I'm super excited for that. Is there anything else you want to leave our listeners with other than, of course, listening to your amazing podcast, which we're going to link up in our show notes, but anything else that you want to tell them? Yeah, I mean, I guess that probably the basic things are the basic things are just that hopefully nobody will take anything I said as financial advice because, you know, that's not what I do. But also, I would urge them to listen to my show if they haven't yet, because I do think it's a little bit differentiated from the other podcasts because I am a journalist. And there are a lot of people who like work in the space who have podcasts, but you know, simply because they don't have that outside role. I, I feel like they just have a friendlier kind of relationship with the with the guests because they're all sort of in it together. But then because I, I am a little bit on the outside, uh, it does sort of give me more freedom to ask questions probably that like a lot of people are wondering, but maybe the other podcasters like feel too polite to ask. Yep. <laughs> Which is why I love, um, love your show. <laughs> so, so for that reason, yeah, I would urge people to check out my shows. Yeah, I want to thank you so much for coming on The Mission Daily. This is yeah such a great interview. It was so nice to have you on. And hopefully we can do a round two in the near future. Yeah, yeah, I would love that. Thanks for having me. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.